0: Good morning, yeah, <laughs> good afternoon, okay um, let's see here. I think I told you last week sometimes I might draw. I did not say I was good at drawing, and that'll be I hope funny for you okay um. My name is Dana, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Erickson Covenant Church. I'm so grateful to have you with us this morning. Uh, This is the second week in our summer series on the book of Ephesians called A Life Worthy of the Calling. And we're studying Ephesians because I really believe that we as a whole congregation, we need to hear the message that this letter has it answers some of the deep questions, the questions that we have about what God is doing in the world, and in light of that, what is the purpose or response of the church? What are we supposed to do? And so if you have found yourself with questions about where you belong or how to respond to things like the attacks even this week in Kabul and in London, and whether the church is even relevant today in light of all of that, This is the message series for you. Um, There's some swag in this message series, stuff we all get. Do you know that? That's what it's called, swag. Okay. And it is these tiny Ephesians booklets. Very exciting. How many people have their booklets from last week and brought them back? Let me see them. It worked. It worked. Okay. What we're doing with the booklets is you're going to use them during the service and then I'm inviting you to drop them in your mail folder by the front door so you don't forget them on the counter in the morning. If, you're, if you weren't here last week and you need a booklet, just put your hand up in the air and Angelie and Caleb are going to run some around to you. Don't be shy. Everybody needs a booklet. Um, they're simple. That's right. There they are. It's quite simple. All you're going to have is the scripture on one side and a blank page on the other. And this is because... The author of Ephesians, his name is Paul, and he's kind of wordy, and so his sentences get all like confusing and mixed in together, and if you're not looking at it, you can really get lost in all those words. So I want us to be able to look at it together. You can feel free in this booklet to circle stuff, underline things, make notes, draw pictures. That's why there's no lines in your booklet, because some things in Ephesians are easier to understand in a picture than in a sentence so let me recap a couple of things from last week. Paul wrote this letter from prison and it was intended to be circulated among a number of little churches in Asia Minor um, and it's meant for all the churches for any church it's meant to be read in the church as an encouragement to them and that's why we can so clearly know that it's meant for us just as much as it was meant for them because it's not specific to any one congregation the other thing that we talked about last week is that the, the congregations hearing this letter read to them they would have been struggling they were facing persecution from the Roman government to the point where Christians were being killed every day because of their faith. And there was also a lot of infighting within individual congregations, primarily because of um, different cultural backgrounds. People are trying to one-up each other and jostle for position, and so... It's not an easy time to be part of the church. And people would have been wondering, is it time for me to just quit this thing? Like, is it time for me to step out? And hearing from Paul would have been very helpful. Now, last week, the main point of the entire sermon, although there were many good points that you can hear on the podcast, but the main point is this, that God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. And the plan is this. God is gathering up or reconciling all things through Christ. Things in heaven and things in earth. The great cosmic plan that God is enacting throughout history is to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. And the church is part of that plan. So today we're going to pick up this letter in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, which is page 2 in your booklet. And I'm going to read that for us now, so you can follow along with me. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that, with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, we're going to notice some things together. The first thing I notice in the two opening verses is that Paul is expressing how grateful he is for the believers. Remember that he's been in prison for a long time. And this letter is circulating to churches that he may not have visited for a few years. And there would be all kinds of new believers since he'd been there last, and he hasn't met them. But he's heard about them. And what he hears is, is that first, they believe in Jesus, and second, they love the saints. Now, the saints in here, it's not fancy. These aren't special Christians or shiny Christians. It's not like that. It just means all the other believers. So what Paul has heard is that they believe in Jesus, and they love the other believers. And those two little, right, those are little facts, are enough to make him so grateful for them that he can't Stop thanking God. We take so many things for granted, even the very presence of other believers in our lives, right? You can't walk down the street in Creston without running into someone who shares your faith. I've tried it. (laughs) You can't. There's so many believers around us. We see them every day. But Paul is in prison. He's alone a lot. He's surrounded by people who don't know what he knows. And so the stories that are coming in about other believers, new brothers and sisters, new partners in the gospel who are carrying on the work of sharing the good news about Jesus, those stories would absolutely sustain him. Because the fact of those people coming to faith means that his life his work, his sacrifice, were worthwhile. If you have counted everything lost for the sake of other people coming to know Jesus, which Paul did, then it is the deepest joy when you find out it's happening. And so he is grateful for them and he's praying for them. And verses 17 through 19 in the booklet are the content of his prayer. And I want to talk about the prayer in two parts. When you read verses 17 to 19, like as a person who just read it out loud, it's hard to know where to take a breath. It's one incredibly long, complex sentence. And it's hard to dissect it. But if you pay attention to the grammar and what all those little commas mean, what you find is that Paul is praying one main prayer and then tucked in the middle... He's listing three reasons that he's praying that prayer. So I'm going to do that work for you, and you can add, what I did in my, in my booklet is add brackets in, so I could tuck the reasons away and then understand the content of the main prayer, and you can do that too. The brackets go at the start, the opening bracket, at the start of verse 18, right before the words, so that... And the closing bracket goes halfway through verse 19 after who believe. So if you put that bit in brackets, those are the reasons we'll come back to those. But what I want to do first is just read the main prayer. The main prayer reads like this. I pray that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him according to the working of his great power. So all the believers that he's thankful for, this is what he's praying, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation according to the working of his great power. Isn't that an interesting prayer? I would expect that Paul would be praying that their suffering would be alleviated or praying that the Romans would be defeated once and for all. But he doesn't. In the midst of that chaos, he prays for wisdom and revelation. He prays for a kind of knowing. Remember last week we talked about how believers, even we as believers, we have a felt identity, like an identity that we experience all the time. And for these guys who are receiving the letter, it was like they feel oppressed, they feel frustrated, they feel isolated, fragmented. But then we also... Felt identity, we also have a true identity that Paul is drawing our attention to, which was holy and adopted and reconciled. And so Paul's prayer is that these believers would be able to see clearly, to know what's true, in spite of what they see in front of them every day. They see a fractured and divided church. They see broken families. But Paul wants them to see God's cosmic plan to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. And seeing that truth in the midst of the day today is going to require wisdom and revelation. So he prays that God would give it to them. Now, we don't tend to pray for that very often, and we should actually. You know, instead of just praying about whatever we see, What if we started praying to see the way way God sees? Pray about seeing what's really there so that we can act accordingly. So Paul's prayer for these fellow believers, that they come to know God more and that they'll have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then in verse 8, the start of our brackets, verse 18, I'm sorry. Start of the brackets, he says, so that... Now, whenever you're reading scripture and you come to the word so that, it should kind of pop off the page and make you lean in a little bit because that's when you're going to find out a reason, right? It's like reading the word because. You're going to find out why. He says, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, which is just another way of saying revelation, you may know, and then he lists three things. First, so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The hope we're called to is that we are forgiven and death is beaten. As Christians, we believe, Christians believe that death is literally beaten and robbed of its power because Jesus rose from the dead. And if you've been a believer for a long time, you can kind of get so familiar with that that it just, it just runs off. You just sort of forget about the power of it. And if you're not a believer, it can sound crazy. <laughs> I get that. But think about what it means if, regardless of the suffering and the sickness that's around you, regardless of the number of losses you've experienced, what if death, Itself does not have any power over you. Furthermore, sin does not have any power over you. Think about the number of times this week that you have messed something up and then you're so embarrassed about it you can hardly breathe. That has no power over you. When you wrong someone, and I don't mean a misunderstanding, like this morning I tried to put on coffee for the worship team, and I don't know what was wrong with the brand new coffee maker, but, but when, um, <laughs> when Bill and Marcia came in to really make the coffee, my pot of coffee was all over the kitchen floor, so. <laughs> you know, okay, that's a mistake, and I felt bad about it, but that's not what I mean. Everybody makes mistakes. But when you've actually wronged someone, you know that your actions have caused them pain and suffering, And you feel like that just chews you up inside. The thing is, in Christ, we can repent of those things. We can turn away from them. And people can forgive us. We can be forgiven of them. And they don't have any power. You don't have to live under the weight and the threat of that for the next 10 or 15 years. It can literally be finished because of Jesus. That's hope. Second, Paul says he's praying for wisdom and revelation so that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. The word inheritance means something that you are entitled to simply because you are someone's child. right? Something that you didn't earn, it just comes to you because of who your parents are. And last week we talked about In Ephesians, it talks about us being adopted into the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters of the king. God has all kinds of gifts for his sons and daughters. At the very least, last week, one of the things he's ready to give us is every spiritual blessing, (laughs) just everything, is your inheritance among the saints. And finally, Paul prays for wisdom and revelation so that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. He wants them to know there is incredible power available for believers. They're in so much danger. There would have been so much fear in those churches. And it would seem like they are powerless, but the truth is, They have all the power of God available to them, and so do you. Here's a question. What effect would it have on your life if you could know? I mean, not just theoretically know a concept, but really know in your being, your hope, your inheritance, and your power as a child of God. It's different when you just sort of know about something than when you really, really know it. Right? It's like, it's like trying out a hammock for the first time. Like you could have seen a picture of a hammock, you could have even seen somebody else in the hammock, and you kind of know in theory it's supposed to be able to hold you, but when you get right up to it, basically that's a ball of string, right? And so when you're getting into a new hammock for the first time, Maybe this is just me, but I think you're keeping your weight on one foot for as long as you possibly can. Because who knows if that thing is going to hold? That's the tentative theoretical knowledge. I know in theory it's supposed to work. But once you've been in a hammock, oh my goodness, right? Then you know what it means to relax in that thing and trust it. A friend of mine who's a spiritual director, she said, you know, it's not usually until the second decade of marriage that partners finally trust each other. Up until then, they're present in the marriage, certainly. Okay, don't worry. Nobody look at their spouse. Look at me. <laughs> Hello. All right. They're present in the marriage. They love each other. They're committed to that thing, right? But you're, you always kind of wonder, And she said, then sometime in the second decade, kind of without realizing, they just notice one day that they're not wondering anymore. They notice that they've relaxed. They've been through so much. They're sure now that they're going to be in it forever. They finally put all their weight in that hammock. And that's what Paul is praying for that these relatively new and kind of ragged believers would have revelation and wisdom so that they could trust what is true in Christ, lean all the way back in the hammock, and know they're secure. That's powerful. Now, right in the middle of the passage, verses 19 and 20, Paul uses the word power three times in really quick succession. Let's look at verse 19 and 20. Halfway through verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? And then later, according to the working of his great power. And then verse 20, God put this power to work. What do those all mean? Let's try to untangle them. I want to start with the third time he uses the word power in verse 20. Paul says, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I don't know about you, but I cannot raise someone from the dead. Right? Can you? Are you holding out on me? Okay. No, you're not. Of course not. That's an incredible power. Think about the power of God to raise someone from the dead and then seat him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. That is the deep, profound power of God. It might be the most incredible thing that God has done. It's unique to God, and he's tapping into it when he raised Christ from the dead. And then when we back up to the second time that Paul uses the word power, at the end of verse 19, it says, this is the main prayer, right? This is that main prayer. Give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation according to the working of his great power. And then he says, God put that power to work. So these things are tied to one another. I told you they were tangled. Hang on. This second time, Paul is asking God to use the power he used to raise Christ from the dead, that same power, asking God to put it to work in the church to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, let's just consider those two ends for a second, right? Those two goals. Raising Christ from the dead, giving wisdom and revelation to the church. Those seem really unequal to me. Like, they don't seem the same at all. And yet, Paul is putting them on the same playing field because he's saying the same power of God is going to be required for both of these things. It must be such a critical thing. So important to God's ultimate plan for the world that the church have this revelation and wisdom. So let's keep that in mind. This knowing that Paul is praying for, for us, is made possible through the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Okay, now we're going to back up one more time and look at the first use of the word power, which is halfway through verse 19, so that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. And so one of the reasons that Paul is praying for the wisdom and revelation is so that the church would know the greatness of the power that is available to them. That you would know how much power is really at your disposal when you feel utterly defeated and powerless. He wants you to know what's really there. So this thing, these, these three times, it's a bit of a circular argument, but it's really beautiful Paul is praying that God would use the power he used to raise Christ from the dead to give a spirit of wisdom and revelation to the church so that the church would know how much power is available to them. The same power that was used to raise Christ from the dead. These three things, this is all the same power. And it's being put to work for our benefit let's pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation cuz it changes everything when we know this power okay so that's paul's prayer that's the first part and then in verse 20 he's transitioning to describing a picture of Christ and we're going to notice some words in this section together about the position that Christ has in the world let's look in verse 20 <clears throat> It says, when he raised him from the dead, and then in verse 21, that he's far above all rule and authority. And then later, he's above every name that is named. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and made him the head over all things. All those positional words, above, above, raised, over, and under his feet. I have those all marked with little arrows in my, in my booklet. Here's the picture that Paul is painting. I'm going to draw it for you. Get excited. Are you getting excited? Okay, I thought so. Okay. Christ is raised up and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. These are the heavenly places. I'll put a cloud I'm a great artist. Okay. And he is above all the rule and authority, all the power and dominion, every name that is named. I'm not writing all those stuff, all that stuff out, but this is all of the stuff that is in their way, all the stuff that threatens them. Christ is far above all of this stuff. And in fact, Paul says, God put all of these things Under his feet. Now, here's my real artistic ability. These, my friends, are the feet of Jesus. All right. Christ is seated up in the heavenlies. All the other stuff underneath the feet of Jesus. He's over everything. Let's think about it. All rule and authority. So... All oppressive government regimes, all unjust laws, every kind of emperor, king, Caesar, every soldier, every boss, every president, every dirty cop, every teacher, Christ is over those. He's over all power and dominion. So every physical violence, every spiritual power, every slavery, every colonization, every darkness and fear and terror, every stronghold and evil that we sense but we can't see, Christ is over those. Every name that is named, every politician, every corporation, every bank, every idea so pervasive that we can't even see it anymore, money and sex and capitalism and individualism and greed and materialism, everything that has power in our lives, that pushes against us and forces our hand in a particular way, Christ is over those. They are all of them under his feet. And to these struggling churches, Paul is saying, all the things you're afraid of and are firmly and decidedly under the feet of Christ for all time. And that alone would have been an incredible assurance. But he goes on from there. In verse 23, he says this about the church. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a side comment, like kind of tucked away at the end. We could almost miss it, but it, it changes the game. The church doesn't exist down here. Even though they might feel like they're stuck in these oppressive forces, stuck under the authority and power, it doesn't live there. The church sits here in the drawing. Between the head and the feet of Christ is the church, it's his body. Now, just in case you don't think that one little verse about, or the one little word, body, is convincing enough, if you turn the page in your booklet to next week's page, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. Verse 6 is talking specifically about the church, and Paul says this, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He uses the exact same words, raised us up, seated us, in the heavenly places. The exact same words that he uses back in chapter 1 and verse 20 to talk about Christ. So all of the positional things that are true of Christ are also true of the church. We are so connected to Christ, you can't separate us. Like connected the way my torso is connected to my neck. Right? You cannot separate that. We do not live under the rule and authority and power that we see around us. We live in the heavenly places with Christ. Now, it's not each one of us individually, right? I'm not confused about me, myself, being the fullness of Christ. And I'm not confused about whether we are Christ. We are not. We're people. But Paul says the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is filling everything, everything in the world. And the church is the fullness and completion of Christ. Not individuals, but the church, the global church, all the believers. Yes, the completion of Christ. And all that Christ is going to do to fulfill the cosmic plan of God, all the work, all the planning, all the miracles to reconcile everything to God, he is going to do that through his body, through the church, which is you. So when we hear this plan to reconcile all things to God and we think, I don't even like my neighbor. How am I going to be reconciled to all things? Right? How is he going to do that? Well, y'all are the body, friends. You are the hands and feet. You are the shoulders and knees and the strong back of Christ. You are the eyes and the ears and the mouthpiece of God. How is he going to do it? Through us. That's what we're called to. This is not a game. We need to get ready for this work. It matters. Last week I mentioned that the first half of Ephesians is developing a way of thinking, a worldview. And the worldview that Paul is creating for us is this. We are under the impression We live most of our lives in this little bubble. I know you can't all see it. It's just a circle. This little bubble called the here and now where we're just consumed with our own life and whatever's going on in our day-to-day reality. We feel stuck in this season of time and trapped in the midst of all the oppressive forces that are stronger than us, but that is not the truth. The truth is that we as the church were chosen, remember this from last week, chosen way back before the foundation of the world for a plan that extends all the way to the fullness of time. And far from being stuck down here, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We are part of Christ, his body. And through his body, through us, God is bringing to completion his plan to reconcile all things to himself. That's the worldview that Paul is offering. Now, why does a worldview matter? Let's think about being in prison. I think that being arrested must be an utterly humiliating experience. When Paul was arrested, it meant being stripped and beaten and mocked and ridiculed, and then either chained to a wall or locked behind bars in a cell. It would be cold, you would be hungry, you would be alone. And so if your worldview, the way that you think and understand the, the world, is that the here and now bubble is all that there is, then prison is a serious limitation. I mean, that's the end of the road. And I think that you would start to turn inside yourself. You would be scared, hopeless. You might pray to be released or even to die. But if you have a worldview like this, where you understand that no matter where I am, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I am one with all other believers. And I am a critical part of God's plan to reconcile all things to himself, then it's totally different. Because you can draw comfort from the fact that other believers are praying for you, are working alongside you. You can submit to the prison authority knowing that that is temporary and eventually will be subject to the authority of Christ. You can even honestly look around you and ask, Why does God have me here? Who in this place is not yet reconciled in Christ? And how can I make that happen? And that's exactly what Paul does. Well, he's in prison, he willingly submits to the authority of the guards. In fact, one time, God sends this earthquake that is so powerful that it opens all the doors to the prison and breaks all the chains. So all the prisoners are just like standing around free as a bird. And the guards fall unconscious. You've a prison full of guys who are not chained anymore and not locked behind any doors. All the doors are open and the guards are unconscious on the floor. And you think that they would run. But while they're there, Paul convinces everyone to stay put. He's like, guys, let's just hang out for a minute. Why does he do that? They could have been out of there. They could have been free. He does it because when the guards wake up, they are so scared that the prisoners would be gone. And then they look around and they see them sitting there. They're so overwhelmed by that. They ask, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And then Paul gets to tell them about Jesus and they and their families become believers. So right in the midst of being in prison, he's participating in God's plan to reconcile all things to himself. He is committed to that plan, even if it costs him his life, which it does eventually, because he knows that even death has no power over him. He's already raised to life in the heavenly places with Christ. That's the power that a worldview has. It's why Paul prays the way he does for the church, asking for wisdom and revelation for us to know what's really true. Because the way we think, the way we interpret reality, changes how we live. My friend Lisa was visiting this week, and Lisa's been living... Um, with a, in a house with a group of young adults this past year, and they're fantastic young adults, but um, there can sometimes be a lot of drama <laughs> when young adults are trying to figure out what they think about faith and, wh- and discerning a call into full-time ministry. There just is, because one day they're super excited about what God is doing around them, and the next day they're like, oh no, I don't even know if God exists, I don't know if he loves me. It's just like that. That's normal. If you're a young adult, I'm not judging you. It's just normal. I know what it's like. So Lisa was reflecting how much less drama she has in her life now that she's in her 40s. And it's not because the world stopped throwing curveballs at her. You know, in the last three years, Lisa beat cancer and lost her father. And started looking for a new job after 20 years in the same ministry. There's a lot of stuff in her life. It's not because life is easy that there's no drama. It's because she has stopped wondering whether God loves her. She's just sure now that God is good. And so circumstances can change But she trusts God. She's got all her weight in that hammock. The knowing changes how we live. Knowing is part of what it means to come to maturity in faith, to grow up and become an adult in our faith. We need to know this worldview, this unseen reality. We need the wisdom and the revelation so that we can come to know it in our souls. And let it change us. So, as we leave here today, I have two challenges for you. Um, I have come to know that no matter what kind of sermon I give or how good a Bible study we do, it really doesn't matter unless we put something into practice when we go home. So, here's the application. First of all, I want you to get busy drawing your own version of this of this worldview. I want, I really want you to actually draw it. Maybe it's gonna be in your book. Maybe you want it on a sticky note. I'd like you to draw it at home somewhere and put it up where you're gonna see it. Maybe on your microwave or the bathroom mirror, wherever you are. And then over the course of the week, I want you to consider filling it in with the stuff that is specific to your life, right? What are the forces that you feel like are, are pushing against you? What are the oppressive things that are at work in your life that you need to remember? Those things live down here under the feet of Jesus. And then what are the relationships that are fragmented or broken right now that you need to write up in here in the body, in the church, and remember those things are reconciled in God. They are coming to reconciliation in Christ. I want you to get that thing, that worldview, in front of your face as often as you can this week so that you can take it in and it becomes not just Paul's worldview, but ours as well. Second, I want you to pray and ask God for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I mean, seriously, start every prayer that way even if it's only grace before supper ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation for us as a congregation for your family for you as a person and also for the global church you could just say something like God would you please by your power give your church a spirit of wisdom and reconciliation that's it it's very simple But it starts to change everything when these take root in us. In fact, I think we'll end our time together today. Uh, If you can, I'll ask you to stand. And I'm going to pray that prayer for us. And then I'll bless you as you go. You stand up and pray with me. (laughs) Father, I am so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for Paul and for this letter and the way that he is writing to bring wisdom and revelation to the churches. And so, God, would you please, by your power, give us today, give your church, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would see what you see and live in light of the power available to us in Christ. Amen. I'm going to bless you as you go. Here's the benediction for you. People of God, go forth from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill your high calling as servants and witnesses of Jesus Christ. And now may the risen Christ go with you, above you to watch over you, beside you to befriend you, within you to empower you, and in front of you to show you the way. Amen. Thanks, everyone.